Hi folks, Patrick here. I'm your host. Welcome back to Bibliology. This is the podcast where we speak to Bible scholars and academic theologians about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith today. Today on the show, I'm excited for you all to get to hear my conversation with Dr. Susanna Miller. Um, She is the editor and co-author of the Cambridge Companion to Biblical Wisdom Literature that just came out there. And so I'm interviewing her on her contribution to this and just discussing the wisdom literature in general in the Bible in a scholarly and theological sense. And um, Susanna is um, Chancellor's Fellow in Hebrew Bible at the University of Edinburgh. and She's also Assistant Director of its Centre for Theology and Public Issues. She has a very um, interesting perspective on the wisdom literature and also on theology. And so I'm really stoked for you to get to hear what she has to say. And um, once again, thank you all for listening. And please feel free to subscribe if this is your first time and you like what you hear. Without further ado, let's get on to the show. Hello, Susanna. How are you doing? Thanks for coming on the show. No problem at all. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm well. How are you? I'm I'm great. Yeah, and uh, looking forward to discussing your upcoming contribution, uh, which is of course the Cambridge Companion to Wisdom Literature, and you're of course one of the editors of it. So um, I'm excited to to get into that with you. But before we do that, um, I'm sure the audience would like to get to know you a little bit. First question I have for you is, um, what is the best and worst thing about working in academia? I think I think one of the best things is that you get to be, as one of my colleagues would put it, a professional geek. And um, that is you get to think for a living and write and think and write about things that really interest you. And um, even if they're really idiosyncratic or random, um, and you get to delve into the really the minutiae of things. So the semantics of a particular biblical Hebrew word, for example but also reflect on the really big questions um, of meaning and of truth and of things like that. You also get to meet and collaborate with really amazing and fascinating people, both um, other academics and also students. And some of my best times as an academic are interacting with students. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think probably the, the worst side of it is the whole institutional side of it. It feels like there's a, a kind of constant pressure to be marketing yourself. To um, be researching things that are going to attract funding or attract students, so that you end up kind of inevitably focusing on the things that sell rather than necessarily the things that you're interested in or that matter to you. And so I think that that's an annoying thing about academia. Okay, so do you like have some academic interest that you haven't actually been able to look into yet because it's just so niche? I suppose some academic interests have. So my, um, one of my main interests at the moment is in animals, non-human animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels like there's quite a lot of trying to persuade people why that's an important um, topic in, in biblical studies and more broadly. That's a nice segue because that's one thing that stood out to me from your biography is that you're interested in what's called animal hermeneutics. And um, um, maybe you can give a definition of what that is, like what is animal hermeneutics? So it's, it's a way of reading that take seriously the non-human characters um, and with all the implications of that, including the way that that might problematize um, what we understand by human, um, is non-human being oppositional to human um, and therefore it kind of plays around with our categories 
um, and our ways of breathing in that regard. Uh, what role have animals like played in your personal life as well? Like, were you raised in a farm, or do you have lots of pets, or are you? Um... No, unfortunately, I'm I'm a complete townie. I, I just live in a in a very small Edinburgh flat um, where there's not really any space for any animals, um, and so I do feel like a bit of a fraud because I um, I love animals and I'm super interested in their um, depiction in in biblical texts, particularly. Um, but I don't have any um, or very much interaction with them myself. And actually, I think it would be um, it's a bit of a dream of mine to sometime go on a little research trip to Israel or Palestine um, and actually to spend some time with the actual um, non-human animals that live there. Really? OK. Uh, oh, I'd love to. I think it'd be so interesting. But are not like aren't there lots of them like kind of dangerous like in well i mean i'm talking about like goats and oh right okay like sort of the domestic animals i mean it'd be cool to go and hang out with the lions too but probably a bit beyond the scope yeah. of my research yeah the first one that came to mind for me was the scorpions but, but um yeah oh yeah <laughs> yeah yes i i um went on an archaeological dig once and there were so many scorpions and there was a girl on my team who was not scared of them at all but oh, she jeepers. was terrified of spiders didn't make any sense so whenever there was a spider, I would deal with it. And whenever there was a scorpion, she'd be <laughs> right there picking it up. Made no sense at all. That's like one of the reasons why I'm like, no, I'm never going to Australia because oh, all yeah. the animals there. But um, terrifying. <laughs> I'll have to think of Israel now as well. Um, but um, third question, a fun question is that if you could ask a human Bible character not named Jesus or Paul one question, what would it be? Mm, it's so tricky. There's so many things I want to find out. But I think one thing I'd be really fascinated to know, I'd love, I'd love to ask Isaiah who the suffering servant is. Um, so for listeners, if it's a very famous passage. You may well be familiar with it. In Isaiah 53, we have this depiction of um, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Mm-hmm. He's crushed from transgressions, um, crushed for iniquities, very famous. And of course, in Christian tradition, this is a really important property uh, for Jesus. But... There's not very much consensus amongst scholars about who the original author was thinking of um, when he wrote this passage. So was he imagining a messianic figure? Was he perhaps describing a king? So Zerubbabel or Cyrus, the king of Persia um, or somebody else? Or was it perhaps autobiographical, describing himself? Um, Or maybe it was a kind of personification of people of Israel. Um, so there's lots of options and the jury's really out in it. So I think that'd be mm-hmm. so interesting to find out what was in the original author's mind there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've always found Cyrus to be a strange candidate. It's like, mm. why, would, why would it be Cyrus? Like, was he not just like a really well-off king? He doesn't really sound like someone who was... Yes, but he, really... I mean, he brought the Jews back um, to, or the, the people of people back to Judah um, from their exile and he is described as the uh, Mashiach in Deuteronomy, so the Messiah so that sort of language is used of him um, and he was he sort of held up as being quite a, a good king as it were um, but I yeah I don't think he's a very likely candidate either particularly all this kind of suffering and um, this kind of vicarious suffering thing it doesn't seem very likely. We'll, um, we'll get on to talking a little bit about the Cambridge Companion to Wisdom Literature so you're, of course, one of the editors of this volume. And first off, um, just um, in regard to yourself, what made you want to be a scholar of wisdom literature rather than, you know, a scholar of the minor prophets or 
or Isaiah or or the Pentateuch or what fascinates you in particular about yeah. the wisdom literature? Yeah, well, I, so I suppose um, there's a kind of pragmatic answer to that and the more substantial answer. Um, and the pragmatic answer is that when I was coming up to do my PhD, which is the time when you really start to specialise, I had an idea for a project on Proverbs and I didn't really have any other ideas at the time that I thought were viable. Um, <laughs> and I also had the great supervisor lined up for that project. And so for those reasons, I kind of just stumbled into it. But then the more um, substantial answer of what I find particularly fascinating about the wisdom literature um, is that it really cuts to the heart of some of the really big questions um, in a way which is perhaps less obvious to some of the other biblical books. So the wisdom books tend to be more kind of transcultural and transhistorical in their outlook. Um, they don't speak so much about the specifics of Israelite history or the Israelite nation, but they address these much more universal concerns. So, for example, Proverbs reflects on ethics and wisdom. Job, of course, grapples with the problems of human suffering and Ecclesiastes on the meaningfulness of life. Um, and those issues are just so important for people today. Um, so it feels like those the portrayal of um, the various topics is is very pertinent for the, for the contemporary world. Mm -hmm. And definitely that lack of historical background is, you know, key because when you're specialising in topics that require a lot of that, you always have to devote loads of chapters and books just to explaining the background yeah. and everything. So yeah, that that makes sense as well. Yeah, and um, one thing about you know the wisdom literature that of course anyone who reads this volume will soon realize if they don't already is that this style of literature is not unique to the Bible. Um, so what are some examples of non-Jewish wisdom literature or non-Israelite wisdom literature? And, and what are some of the similarities and differences that we see when comparing it with the biblical literature as well? Mm -hmm. I'm interested to know. Yeah, so you're completely right. This isn't a specifically Israelite phenomenon and we find text comparable um, to the biblical wisdom literature all across the ancient Near East, um, particularly in Egypt and Mesopotamia. And the best comparisons really depend on which of the wisdom books you're talking about. So for Proverbs, we might compare um, the Egyptian instructional texts particularly. There are loads and loads of examples of these, right from um, the Old Kingdom, which is about uh, 2600 BCE, all the way through to the late period, um, which is the first century CE. And typically these texts will give um, instructions from a father to a son, often at a moment um, of succession, so passing on his mantle to his son, um, giving ethical and practical advice for successful living. And that's really, really similar to what we see in Proverbs. We have these uh, exhortations, my son, um, do such and such. And in fact, there's one um, example where most scholars think that there's an actual direct literary connection. So mm -hmm. in the book of Proverbs, um, in a central section at the end of chapter 22 and beginning of chapter 23, there's a section which looks really, really similar to an Egyptian text called The Instruction of the Menomope. So much so that most scholars would think that the author of Proverbs was directly copying in some sense or had access to some form of this Egyptian text as was fashioned in his own text. <laughs> um, having said that, though, there are some important differences between the Egyptian text and Proverbs. Um, so the theological worldview is quite different. There's a, a range of gods um, in the Egyptian texts. Also, in the Egyptian texts, we tend to only hear, um, it's all 
spoken through the voice of the father. Whereas in the in the book of Proverbs, we find a range of different voices. So the father speaks, but so does Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, um, and uh, the voice. Uh, yeah, so we have we have these multiple voices speaking. Um, and also in Proverbs, the the different sayings have um, uh, two lines, so it's a kind of parallel structure where the first line will say something, and then the second line will repeat it or say the opposite. Um, and that's a very distinctive feature for Proverbs, whereas the Egyptian texts um, don't do that so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the Egyptian stuff is a really good parallel to Proverbs. For something like Job, on the other hand, there are really interesting Mesopotamian uh, comparable texts. So there are several Mesopotamian compositions in which a, um, a righteous person is suffering and grapples with the reasons for this and how that squares with his relationship with God, with his God. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, there's a text called Ludlul Belmaneki and another one called the Babylonian Theodicy. And all these texts grapple with perceived injustice and the correct response to suffering with the inscrutable will of God, which are all topics which are really important to the book of Job as well. Um, and the Babylonian Theodicy as well has this dialogue form between the sufferer and his friend where they're sort of discussing what's going on, which again is similar to Job. But in Job, we find it's much more of a developed dialogue. So he has multiple friends. Um, there's a narrator who pops up at the beginning and the end. There's potentially an anonymous voice in a poem in chapter 28. And, of course, there's the famous whirlwind speech um, where God speaks after the whirlwind. And none of that we get in the Mesopotamian texts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's not very surprising when you think about it that there would be parallels to Job because theodicy basically is the oldest question in existence isn't it well exactly yeah it's a universal question which goes back to my answer to your previous question these questions are still here today like we have throughout history people have tried to give answers to them but no one has has solved it just yet and the book of job Job comes pretty close job is is hands down my favorite book probably in the world um definitely in the hebrew bible (laughs) oh really okay okay that's i love job right and do you think he solves the question then? No, but I think um, he gives us material to think with. Yes, exactly. I don't think, I don't think you can, we can solve the question. I think it's um, an insoluble problem. So you have a couple of chapters in in this um, in this in this volume, and um, one of them has the title "The Multiple Genres of Wisdom," and you're you're trying to like separate into all these different types, and um, you actually acknowledge in it that scholars are increasingly uneasy about calling wisdom literature a genre. I mean, you know, even in your past question, we already get to hear that these are very different compositions, you know, there's definitely a flavor of that. So um, is that one of the reasons why uh, scholars are kind of hesitant to call it a genre? It's just so diverse. And um, I suppose, where would you land on this issue? Yeah, I mean, that is certainly part of it. There, there is stuff in common between um, the what we would class as being the biblical wisdom books. So that's Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and then um, Ben, Sirah, and Wisdom of Solomon, if, if we move into the Deuterocanonical stuff. Um, so, yeah, there are really big differences between these texts. So that is one of the reasons. Um, there are some other reasons, too. So, for example, um, the, the label wisdom literature, some people would say, is a bit of a modern anachronistic category. So 
Um, there's a scholar called Will Kynes who a few years ago wrote this uh, very provocatively titled book called An Obituary for Wisdom Literature, where he basically said, wisdom literature is dead. Um, and he sort of diagnoses what's gone on with it. And in his chapter on the birth of wisdom literature, he looks into the history of scholarship and when this term wisdom literature first arose, which he dates to the mid 19th century with um, a German scholar called Johann Bruch. Um, and what Kynes argues is that Bruch and those who followed him really created this category of wisdom literature in their own image. So they looked for things in biblical texts that adhered with their own religious worldview, um, which was quite universalistic, quite philosophical, quite humanistic. And then they made those features really definitive for their categorization and just became blind to everything else. Um, as well as that, with our kind of modern understanding of life in ancient Israel, it seems really unlikely now that there was a, a distinctive group of sages or wisdom writers, uh, which is what scholars used to think. Um, it used to be thought that that particular sociological group was responsible for the wisdom literature. Mm -hmm. However, now we think that the scribes who wrote these texts were probably the very same scribes who wrote all the other texts in the Hebrew Bible. So it seems a bit silly to um, separate them off. And leading on from that, that um, there is a lot of commonalities between some things that we find in the wisdom text and things that we find elsewhere. Um, so wisdom is a major theme in several narratives. For example, the Garden of Eden story. Um, mm -hmm. Scholars have found various parallels there, notably with the tree of um, knowledge of good and evil. Mm -hmm. um, Sort of King Solomon as well, lots of wisdom in there. Book of Ezekiel has several passages. Um, and so for all those many reasons, um, I think we do need to be careful of how we use the, um, the terminology of wisdom literature, particularly if it obscures other possible categorizations or blinds us to other ways of seeing these texts. Um, however, I think that as a scholarly community, we're not quite ready to get rid of the label altogether. Um, even Will Kynes, who wrote the obituary, was then happy to subsequently publish the Oxford Handbook for Wisdom and the Bible. Um, and that's so the rival. Quite... Yes, it is the rival, so perhaps I shouldn't be mentioning it on this <laughs> podcast, but, um, but it's an excellent volume. Um, but it just goes to show that, that it is useful to categorise these so-called wisdom texts together in some sense. Mm -hmm. And I like that you bring out the that the, there's wisdom literature kind of in the Garden of Eden story, because... It's fascinating when you look into it, kind of the similarities between Proverbs and Genesis 2 and 3, isn't it? It's really... It's so interesting, yeah. And But the interesting thing in the Garden of Eden story is that they're forbidden from seeking wisdom. And there's some interesting bits where it's very, very similar terminology is used. And in Proverbs, it's like, yes, you should seek this. Um, it's It will make you flourish. I think it's his heel in the Hebrew. Um, and, and wisdom is something to be delighted in and desired. And then in the Garden of Eden story, you have um, the, the woman desiring to eat the fruit. It uses very same Hebrew terminology, but she's forbidden from doing so. So you're like, what's going on there? Yeah, Why yeah. is it um, something which is really exhausted in one place and then forbidden in the other? Mm, mm, okay, I'll have to think through that now. <laughs> mm. the, yeah, you've put me on a different trajectory there. Okay. And um, it's like some would attempt to boil biblical wisdom literature down to books of the Bible that are wrestling with the question of what it means to to live the good life um i've heard that in in various um contexts so 
is that a fair proposal in your view or or is it perhaps too simplistic you know yeah i mean i, I think you know what i'm going to say it's of course it's, it's a bit too simplistic i think um, any attempt to distill a singular theme from this vast diversity of text is going to be too simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, though, I think that the, the question of how to live the good life is important for many of these texts, and particularly in the book of Proverbs. Um, and there have been a few scholars who've tried to connect Proverbs up with, uh, some, with virtue ethics. So my colleague Arthur Kiefer, for example, who co-edited the volume, um, he does this. And within that ethical system, there seems to be a striving to live the good life um, in at least two senses. And the first is to lead a, a morally good life or a virtuous life, which is much more about fostering a certain character and disposition rather than acting in particular ways. And in Proverbs, we do see that kind of um striving to be a good virtuous person in the use of character terms so we have these terms like um righteous and wicked so tzaddik and rasha and wise and foolish hakam and avil or kasil um, and so there is that sense of striving to lead a morally good life there and the mm-hmm. second sense is to lead a um, a life of flourishing or um eudaimonia and and there is a, sim- a sense in proverbs of a kind of intrinsic connection between being virtuous and having success. Sometimes it's called the act-consequence connection. Um, and so I think, I think in Proverbs, you can make a case that there is a, um, one of the really central themes is, is leading a morally good life, leading to a, a life of flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think we can quite say the same thing about the other wisdom books. Um, so Job, for example, seems much more concerned about the specific question of the best response to suffering rather than generally how to lead a good life. Um, and Ecclesiastes seems to be much more concerned with questions of meaningfulness um, how to stop everything from being vanity, as he calls it, or however you're going to translate that ambiguous Hebrew term. Mm. Um, so again, not so concerned with the questions of the good life, I would say. Mm. It's interesting that you um, that you mentioned applying virtue ethics to the book of proverbs i never heard of that before but you know they they're i know it's not your field but they do that in new testament studies as well they like Hmm. apply it to jesus teachings and paul's teachings so it's interesting there's a bit of continuity there yeah 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 for sure there have been a few people so um michael fox and um chris ransbury have done this as well and all the i mean all the sessions are really interesting um whether we can see specific parallels, so sometimes although it's it's all Aristotelian or um, or it's all Socratic or something, but yeah. I, I think yeah, I think when you start to go down that line, it does you push it a little bit. But I think certainly then um, it's striving to reach the same goals and reaching some of the same conclusions. I think. Mm-hmm. And in your chapter, you you discuss all of these like. Um, uh, call them genres or categories or or, or whatever sort <laughs> However, of yeah. yes yeah you have uh, wisdom dialogue and didactic narrative uh, diatribe and proteptic which is the first time i've ever heard that word and probably most of the people listening have ever heard that word <laughs> but um you know of all these different genres you discuss um is there a most common that we find in in the jewish corpus and um 
why might it have been the most popular of the various films? Mm, yeah, I mean, there are uh, they are really diverse, all the different uh, genres and forms that we find in these texts. And in the chapter, I try and kind of categorise the genres um, by, their, uh, by their function. So I have these genres of instruction, genres of reasoning, of praise, and genres of complaint. Um, and in terms of which one the most popular is, um, probably in the wisdom literature, I would say it's the instructional genres, um, which can be uh, yeah, subdivided <laughs> into um, sayings and more extended instructions which we find particularly in Proverbs and Ben Sira. Um, didactic narrative, as you mentioned, found in Job, diatribe, found in Ecclesiastes, and uh, protrepsis, yes, a word which I also hadn't come across until I wrote this chapter, um, found in the, the Wisdom of Solomon. It's a Greek rhetorical um, genre, uh, basically. And I suppose in some ways it's not very surprising that we find instructional genres in wisdom literature because Part of the reason why we call it wisdom is because it's passing on wisdom and that's kind of what instruction is. Um, but I do also think it's interesting and significant that the way that biblical writers chose to portray their quest for wisdom was through instruction, through advice um, from one person to another, because that kind of suggests that wisdom wasn't really an individual enterprise, but was more communal or intergenerational. <coughs> Um, and I think we've lost some of that in a more individualistic culture, um, whereas the biblical text seemed to, to stress more the importance of trusting those wise counsellors around you and also the value of humility that even the, uh, the wise person needs to listen to instruction and get wiser. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that, that independent thought isn't also valued. So you also have these genres of human reasoning particularly in Ecclesiastes and Job. Um, Ecclesiastes seems to have, in some sense, an empirical epistemology. So he's always, he says, oh, I saw this, I sought this out. Um, And we get the sense of kind of listening to his internal thought process. Um, And then Job isn't prepared at all to sacrifice his personal experience um, um, to what his friends want to teach him or instruct him. Your discussion of these like various genres, you know, it, it definitely helps in displaying not just the wisdom text diversity in style, but also the various theological tensions, so to speak, which exist in these books. You know, we can think of how Proverbs seems to think there's sort of like an order to the universe that always mm. works out. And then uh, Ecclesiastes seems quite skeptical of that. And then Job um, definitely does seem so. Um how would how would you or anyone how would you begin to articulate like a theolo- theology that lets these tensions stand rather than one that you know engages in easy harmonization? Maybe they actually mm-hmm. really agree, but we just you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this is such an important question, um, particularly in our postmodern context where we are so increasingly aware of just the plurality of truth claims, and. In my own thinking on this issue, I've been particularly influenced by the work of Harold Newsom on the book of Job and also Walter Brueggemann in his Old Testament theology um, book more generally. And both of these scholars um, put dialogue central to the theological inquiry. Um, So they suggest that perhaps a much profounder truth emerges in and through the process of grappling with multiple voices than could ever emerge through a straightforward propositional statement. Mm -hmm. Um, And if God is God, 
then perhaps there's no way that propositional statements could ever claim to summarise God. Um, so Newsom looks specifically at Job, and she argues that Job is a, a polyphonic text with a, she calls it a dialogic portrayal of truth. Um, so truth arises through the interaction of this plurality of unmerged voices um, in this kind of restless process, which is unfinalized and unfinalizable. So it's in constant dialogue. Um, and Brueggemann similarly uses the metaphor of a, of a court proceedings. So you have testimony, which is offset with counter testimony, and any settlement um, ends up just being provisional. And so you have this kind of theological dispute going on in biblical text with, with truth emerging from the process of interaction. Mm-hmm. And that, um, both these scholars suggest, continues into the interpretive community. So that in the process of dialoguing about theological truth and uh, resisting superficial closure, as, as you mentioned, this sort of follows in the impetus set by scripture itself. Um, so... It's, it's, an, it's a difficult, important issue. Um, mm. I think I think dialogue might be an important way forward here. Yeah, and um, I think I think it was like Carl Barth who said, like, um, if you're exploring, um, like, whatever it is, ultimate reality, like divinity, it's not surprising that you're going to be encountering contradictions or things that are like, For you sure. know, yeah, unsettling to your mind. You know, it's just it's just how how we operate as human beings, I suppose. Exactly. So. Yeah, that's, of course, helpful, you know, and another thing I've another book I'd actually recommend um, alongside alongside those is um, Cameron B.R. Howard's book, um, The Old Testament for a Complex World. Um, I don't know if you heard of that, but um, um, we interviewed her in the podcast a while ago as well. And I think she's she has a very similar perspective. And so, yeah, I'd recommend that as well to any listeners who are interested. But um. Are you ready for some hot takes, Susanna? I am totally ready. In this last fun section of the interview, um, I'm going to read out some of the more controversial statements that have made, been made about wisdom literature down through the years in the academic tradition or in the Christian tradition or in both. And um, you can say whether you disagree or agree and elaborate. So the first, and maybe this one's a little bit redundant in light of our earlier discussion where you said that it's kind of an artificial thing. But anyway, number one, the book of Deuteronomy should be considered as wisdom literature. It does not look out of place next to Proverbs. Perhaps Proverbs is even a sequel to Deuteronomy. Uh, yeah, I think um, my earlier comments do do say something towards this. And I suppose there's a question here of uh, how just how broad we want to make the category of wisdom literature. Um, and and what criteria we're we're looking for when we classify something as being wisdom. And we might even flip this on its head, and if there are these similarities between Proverbs and Deuteronomy, perhaps Proverbs is a legal text or a Deuteronomistic text. Um, And it's interesting, actually, because scholars have tried to um, historically look at maybe wisdom and law have a common foundation, um, or maybe one grew out of the other. Um, But yes, I think that... The nub of what you're getting at is that there are some really interesting um, comparisons to be made between Proverbs and Deuteronomy. So both of them um, centralise kind of ethical exhortations, both describe a process of intergenerational transmission, um, both have this strong sense of the righteous being rewarded and the wicked being punished. Um, And there's also some connections around like really bizarrely specific things. So they both talk about the falsification of weight, 
both talk about moving boundary stones. Um, so there are some, some really mm. interesting links there. Um, mm. But uh, there are some also some um, important differences. So notably, Deuteronomy has this strong sense of the covenant between God and Israel um, and renunciation of foreign gods and on specifically on the Torah. Um, and all of these themes are marginal at best in Proverbs, which, as we said before, seems to be much more kind of universalistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's particularly striking, I think, if we compare Proverbs to um, some of some other texts where wisdom and Torah do come into explicit um, correlation. So Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, um, and the Book of Bensira would be some examples of that. Mm-hmm. When like when the Psalms talk about the law being wisdom and all that, it like I'm I'm just assuming they're not talking about the book of Leviticus, that they must be talking about something like Deuteronomy rather than the more yeah. the more priestly yeah. text, I'm guessing. Do you think that's yes. true or I think yeah, I think that's probably fair. I mean the words for law in Hebrew is Torah, which which can also just be instruction. And it does, in fact, crop up in Proverbs as well. Um, and there it's, it's usually taken as just being like the father's instructions rather than the specific legal codes. Um, I think there's a whole host of questions around whether the, the psalmists could have known uh, which of the other biblical texts the psalmists could have known. And we know so little about the dating of of the Psalms and each Psalm might be different in terms of that. Um, and so you'd have to sort of just take it by a case by case example when you're mm-hmm. looking at that issue, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the the second hot take. And this is actually similar to um, what we were talking about, you know, the book of Proverbs and virtue ethics earlier. Mm. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes was clearly influenced by Greek philosophy. What do you think of that? I think that's probably true to some extent. I think you can make a better case for Ecclesiastes being influenced by Greek philosophy than for Proverbs, particularly because most scholars would date Ecclesiastes um, to the Hellenistic period, so when the Greeks were in charge of the region. Um, and so the influence seems seems highly plausible for, in that milieu. Um, mm-hmm. And scholars have discerned some really interesting comparisons between um, Ecclesiastes and Greek philosophy at the time. Um, so, for example, things like his empirical um, epistemology and his focus on rational thought, his scepticism often comes up in these conversations, his questioning of the world, his quite individualistic approach in comparison to some of the other books, um, his carpe diem exaltations, these sort of eat, drink and be merry sayings um, and sort of apparent hedonism at times. And there have also been some specific attempts to connect Kohalata Oh, sorry, Kohala is the, the Hebrew word for Ecclesiastes that we use. Yeah. Um, uh, so th- there have been specific attempts to connect it up with the with various Greek philosophical schools. So some people would say, oh, Kohala is a Stoic or a Cynic or an Epicurean, um, or he's drawing from like particular Greek thinkers. Um, but none of these links, it's a bit like what we were saying before with, with Provi, Proverbs um, and Aristotelian or Socratic ethics. Um, none of the links just quite work. Um, and for Kohelet, the sheer number of possibilities might suggest that he's he's less likely to be, have been influenced by one specific philosophical school and more likely to have been indirectly shaped by the, the broader Hellenistic milieu. 
um, in which he was writing. Mm-hmm. And we also need to remember that Kohala is following in the tradition of Jewish texts and Jewish wisdom. And so his many of his major influences came from that direction rather from, than from the Greek stuff. Mm. It's especially the case with the Bible, isn't it, that we have to be careful about parallelomania? You know, just exactly. trying to find parallels, you know. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, the one I've heard the most is definitely the cynic, the cynic one. Yeah. That's that's the the school that I often hear associated the most. But it it, it is true what you say that it could be multiple, um, yeah. multiple avenues that are influencing him. Yeah. Um, this is this third one is a is a little little different, uh, more of a historical hot take. Um, the Book of Proverbs was written partly by King Solomon. Well, okay, so I would say there's clearly some sort of a connection between Proverbs and Solomon. So Proverbs um, begins by saying, Mishle Shlomo ben David melech Yisrael, the Proverbs of Solomon, um, son of David, king of Israel. And again, in at the beginning of chapter 10, it's called the Proverbs of Solomon. Um, and that connects up quite nicely with something we read in Kings about how Proverbs, how, sorry, how Solomon spoke, like 3,000 Proverbs about trees and hyssop and birds and beasts and all sorts of things. Um, and so the question is, how do we explain the connection? A historical connection? Is it um, a literary construction? And personally, I would lean towards the latter, it being a literary phenomenon more than a historical one. Not to say there couldn't be a historical kernel of Solomon as a wise man. Um, but what we know of scribal culture and even of literacy in the 10th century BC, which is the time when Solomon um, was around, suggests that there probably wasn't much developed scribal culture at the time. Um, So these sophisticated literary products like the Book of Proverbs probably came from a later period. Um, And the thrust of scholarship seems to be towards seeing Proverbs as largely a scribal phenomenon. Mm. And in addition to that, the, the character of Solomon um, seems to have um, accrued more and more this wise persona as time went on, um, so that his name and his persona just got attached to uh, these other works and perhaps to bolster their authority or their significance. So not only Proverbs, but the Song of Solomon, of course, possibly Ecclesiastes, depending on how you interpret it, um, and then the Wisdom of Solomon, which certainly wasn't written by him, but has him right there in the name. Um, mm. And this, this practice of attaching the name of a, a hero or a legendary figure to a literary work seems to have been um, really widespread in the ancient world um, and doesn't seem to have been any problem. Um, and in a similar way, I'd suggest it's like when David gets attached to the Psalms. Mm. Although maybe that's opening up a whole other kind of worms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My uh, conservative side um, makes me you know, go slightly more towards the traditional perspective. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, some, some scholars would say that. So Bruce Waltke, in his um, excellent two-volume commentary on Proverbs, makes the case of a, of a Solomonic autograph, I believe. Um, so it's not like everybody thinks, oh, no, that's ridiculous. Mm, yeah. We'll maybe move on to number four of these hot takes. And this is, of course, the... I think we'll probably be on the same page on this one. Um so behemoth is clearly a sauropod and leviathan is a plesiosaur and anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about we're talking about the beasts that are described at the end of the book of job yeah exactly 
and I, I love Beamoth and the Bison. They are wonderful. And they're, they're described in really intimate detail and they're really scary. And they have these monstrous bodies with um, bones like tubes of bronze and um, breathing fire and things like this. Um, and as it's sometimes been suggested, as as your hot take um, stated, that these are some sort of dinosaurs um, or something like that. Personally, I don't think that's the case. Um, I don't think that the author of Job was familiar with dinosaurs. Um, but I think there is a question about what on earth these creatures are. Um, sometimes it's thought that they're like real world creatures that the author of Job would have seen. Um, so the, the common interpretations are Behemoth being a hippo and Leviathan being a crocodile. Um, but then uh, the details don't really seem to fit there. And also, I think it kind of detracts from the, the drama and the mystery of this theophanic language. Um, if we try and kind of reduce it down to these biological identifications. Mm. Um, and so personally, I think that the author of Job here is tapping into um, the pool of ancient Near Eastern mythology, um, particularly with chaos myths. Um, Leviathan in particular is really well known throughout the ancient Near East as being a sea monster. Um, in Isaiah 27, you have the, the Leviathan with seven heads. Um, who seems to be quite symbolic of the forces of chaos. Um, and so it might be that, that their sort of symbolic mythological meaning um, may be the reason for their inclusion and their amazing description here. We we actually have a couple of previous episodes, and the listeners will be interested, uh, episode three and four, where we actually were looking specifically at the question of uh, Leviathan and Behemoth. Um, oh, so interesting. So, so yeah, but... Um, I think one of the like I think one point that emerged in the one of the discussions is that multi-headed plesiosaurs are quite sparse in the archaeological <laughs> record, you know. So um it might I think not be an excellent point, yes. Yeah. And um the, the other thing is like it definitely like I think that almost the hippo and the crocodile interpretation are just as bizarre almost because mm. you know uh, isn't like Job like falls on his knees after being sh shown all these things and if he's just yeah. seeing a hippo and a crocodile it's like why would you fall on your knees like it's <laughs> they're just normal animals you know that you see anywhere so I think the chaos interpretation these are agents of chaos it just mm. it just makes so much more sense yeah mm. um, and here's the Here's the fifth hot take, um, the last one. And uh, can I just say beforehand that uh, it's been great to speak to you. Real, real fun. Oh, it's it's so. been really fun. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. And um, this is the idea that the Song of Songs can be considered as wisdom literature. The longing for romantic fulfillment is an allegory for the human quest for wisdom and the good life. So, yeah, the Song of Songs has sometimes been considered um, wisdom literature. And um, there's a recent book by Jennifer Andruska called Wise and Foolish Love, I think, where she makes this case that the Song of Songs is um, wisdom literature. Although she makes it in a slightly different way to the way that you've described. Um, she thinks it's a, a kind of pedagogical text which is advocating a, a certain form of wise love rather than being an allegory um, for the quest for wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, but there are some interesting things in how Song of Songs uses various forms and conventions that we know from wisdom literature. So, for example, it uses some proverbs. Um, and con 
conversely as well, though, certainly the language of desire in, um, in some typically wisdom texts. So Proverbs, in some ways, occasionally people tap into the genres of love poetry um, as a course, sort of pedagogical strategy to motivate its students to seek this wonderful, amazing lady wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this develops most fully into the wisdom of Solomon, which is a, a later Greek text where wisdom is depicted as Solomon's bride. So a very clear kind of romanticization of the quest for wisdom. Um, but whether the Song of Songs itself can be considered as an allegory uh, for the quest of wisdom, I, I don't think so. Um, these allegorical interpretations of the song have been really prominent through its reception history. Not so much the um, the one that you've described, but we do have in, in the Jewish tradition as an allegory for the relationship between God and Israel. In the Christian tradition, an allegory for the relationship of um, Christ and the church. And the imagery of the song, I think, is multivalent enough that it allows for these possibilities. Um, but I I would interpret it in a more straightforward sense of just being a, a human love song, um, yeah. expressing desire and celebrating um, the joy of, of human love. Mm, yeah, I'm partial to um, the, the idea of allegor- allegorical interpretation myself, but, um, you know, when it when it comes to it, it kind of just feels a little bit too strange, you know. And it's probably, <laughs> it's probably just my, you know, uh, post-enlightenment mind, you know, um, but uh, I have a long way to go to be accepting some of some of the claims that i hear about that sometimes but um well those are of course all my questions and um it's been uh wonderful to to have you on susanna and um thanks again and uh, thank you so much for having me